Father, again, we thank you. You are an awesome God. Father, I thank you for the adventures of your early church and their proclamation with power and authority and a life-changing message of the gospel as it went forth from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And God, our heart is to be able to see this same life-changing message being proclaimed with everything in us by the power of your spirit. And we just ask you, God, that you would now instruct us as we look again into this book of Acts, kind of laying a foundation for Paul's epistles, a backdrop, then God, I pray that you would speak by your spirit. Don't let this, don't let this be just a bunch of facts and information, but God, use it for your goal of transformation. So change us and teach us and encourage us and build up, fortify your body, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, if you will. Uh, There technically was no homework, though reading from chapters 13 to 28 would have been helpful because we're going to be going through the four missionary journeys of Paul. But before we do that, a few things that are probably going to take around 30 minutes um, and we're going to try and delegate about an hour to the, or, or 45 minutes to an hour to the uh, four missionary journeys of Paul. And I say four because number, the first three are listed for us, laid out for us in the book of Acts. But number four on this piece of paper, or this map that I handed out to you, and Daniel, if you could be so kind and just make sure they get pieces of those maps. You're going to see in the upper right-hand corner a number of scripture passages that refer to, say, Paul's desire to visit Spain, both um, Irenaeus and uh, Eusebius refer to Paul's journey to Spain. Um, I I believe it's Irenaeus. It might be John, uh, uh, Justin Martyr. But they refer to his journey to Spain. Again, that would be... If it's Justin Martyr, we're looking at almost 190 to 100 years later that he records this. So there's possibility for misinformation here. Eusebius was around 3, 325 A.D. He was a church historian. Of course, he could have been mistaken with hearsay. But it seems as if Paul truly did visit Spain. Um, some suggest he may have even gone up into England, but we, we, we don't know. The truth is, um, what you have there is some of his journeys that he refers to in his later epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, in which he says, this is, you know, I dropped you off in Crete, Titus, he dropped him off in Crete, and so we're just going to be looking at that for a few minutes. Now, for review, I want us to understand, this is what I, I abbreviate this, spirit reception events. How many spirit reception events were there in the book of Acts? Help me out, come on. Yeah, there were a minimum of four. Yep, there were five. Um, one of them is just touched on, and that is Paul. And he would be number three there. We remember Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, and then 19. So 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19. And in when Paul is converted and Ananias lays his hands on him, he receives his sight and it says, and he is filled with the spirit. Um, so those are the five spirit reception events that Luke talks about. And we realize that there were synonyms 
for baptized in the Spirit or with the Spirit, such as filled with the Spirit, received the Spirit, poured the Spirit was poured out, or the Spirit came on them. So these are synonyms. We don't. We, this is very crucial because if you don't understand that these are synonyms, you're going to say there's a difference between baptized or how Luke uses the term being baptized with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. But in actuality, there is not. Though we're going to see right here, number three, some nuances with that. Number two, Acts 1-8 gives us the main purpose or main theme of the book of Acts, and that is um, that... My spirit, when my, when you receive my spirit or, or when, yeah, grab those pieces of paper. Awesome. Good to see you guys. It says, but you will receive power when my spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what we see here then is a very strong focus on the the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, not just through the apostles, but we also have Stephen. And who else, aside from apostles, that we see the power of the Spirit working through? Stephen and Philip. There we go. Both of these guys were deacons. They weren't elders, and they were by no means apostles. But God did miracles through them, spoke powerfully through them, and did awesome things. So we want to be careful. We don't want to say that the apostles were the only ones who did miracles. Many people say the apostles were the ones who did miracles to confirm their apostleship. And though that may be true, that was just one of the elements that confirmed their apostleship. But they had also known Jesus in all of his ministry. Many many who were not apostles also knew Jesus throughout his ministry, but were not called to be apostles. We just want to be careful. We do not want to say that only apostles did miracles. That would not be true. Number three, the filling of the Spirit. And, and we touched on three things. We saw that it was an event. Acts chapter two. They were filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That was an event. Life-changing event, an empowering event for them. But we also saw it as an anointing. Chapter four, they're in the upper room. They've just been persecuted and come back testifying. John and, uh, Peter testifying to the very fact that uh, God had used them in front of the Sanhedrin, etc., etc., and they're praying, and when they're done praying, it says, and they were all filled with the Spirit. Hang on a second. Peter and John, and all of those guys, no doubt, were already filled with the Spirit, so why are you telling us again, Luke, that they were filled with the Spirit? And I'm going to tell you because there is, that is a fresh anointing or fresh filling, and it is for a task. So when Peter stands up in that very same chapter, in the beginning though, to address the Sanhedrin, it says, and Peter, filled with the Spirit, said. It's not wanting us to go back to chapter 2 and say, you remember when Peter was filled with the Spirit? Just want you to remember that. And now he's speaking. No, at that moment, he was specifically anointed, filled with the Spirit. So we want to see that this anointing is different than this miraculous event. Peter experienced both of these. Now, I'm going to use this term a permanent state because this is something in which people would be said to be full of the Spirit. I'm going to venture to say that this event is for all Christians. It's available to all Christians. Every single one of them can experience this event with the Spirit. But it's those who grow in faith and in dependency, utter, complete dependency upon the Spirit 
that they are going to be full of the Spirit. And that is something that is a hallmark of a leader. One of the hallmarks in chapter 6 of the seven deacons. So apostles say, set seven guys aside for us, and we're going to, apostles will lay their hands on them, and they're going to do this work of ministry for the needs of the Grecian or Hellenist widows. Okay, Jewish, Greek-speaking widows. They've been neglected, but one of the qualifications, it's not like they're going to go out preaching and they're not going to go out doing miracles, though we do know some of them did, Stephen and Philip. Um, and then there are, other, there are five others, but these guys, this was a, a requirement. They had to be full of the Spirit. So I want, to all, I want to see this concept of the fullness of the Spirit as something that they abided in and walked in, and it was a hallmark of maturity. But again, it's empowerment, because when we see this reflected in chapter 6, where you have to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, just ten verse, or several verses later in verse 10, it says that when Stephen is speaking, he is speaking, they could not contradict his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. And it is a purposeful reflection back to that passage that refers to the qualifications, full of the spirit and wisdom. Okay, So this fullness is an empowerment of the spirit. Um, Okay, there's all right. Number four, Acts is both historical and didactic. What on earth does that big word mean, didactic? What does that mean? Teaching. There we go. Didactic. There is there was a book written before 100 AD called the Didache, and it's based on this Greek word um, for that we get didactic. And didache actually means teaching. Okay, so. Didactic is an English word. I'm not trying to just pull some fancy word out of the hat here. It's actually an English word, and it means um, of the nature of teaching. So Acts is both historical and didactic. Now, by this, I mean that Luke's purpose in writing this book isn't to just tell us all of these super cool things that happened. Guys, listen up. This is so awesome. But he purposefully picked and chose. He selected certain things to be in this book and purposefully neglected and chose not to discuss many, 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 many other things that he knew about. So his purpose then, because he's being selective, is to try and teach us something. And so we came to this realization that if this is true, then these five spirit reception events in chapters 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19 are there to teach us about receiving the Spirit. We don't want to come to this conclusion or or suggest that all five of these, they just happened, Luke records them, but they will never happen like this again. The significance of that is found in number five, where manifestations of the Spirit in four of the five events that there were manifestations of the Spirit in four of the five events. And the one I'm not including in this is Paul. It doesn't say that he spoke in tongues or prophesied or any other manifestations of the Spirit. But we do know, if we were to look over in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. That he's specifically referring to in his prayer times outside of the church, because then he says, but in the church... I would rather speak 
five intelligible words than a thousand words you don't understand in a tongue, okay? Unless, of course, there is an interpretation, which is his point of that chapter, major point of that chapter. So in four of these five events, there is a manifestation that happens, okay? Number six, we need to realize that Acts is not transitional. The outpouring of the Spirit is meant to be accompanied by manifestations of the Spirit. This is this was the very beginning of Paul's sermon when he quotes from Joel 2. Remember that? He says, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, that is, all kinds of people. And he talks about um, prophecy, visions, um, dreams, and these are manifestations of the Spirit and they will be accompanying this outpouring of the Spirit. And how long will this outpouring of the Spirit last? In the last days. That is, from Jesus, from the time that Jesus died, rose again, seated at the right hand of the Father, I'm kind of including all of that together, and the outpouring of the Spirit, all the way to His second coming. And these, we are in the last days. The Holy Spirit in these last days is being poured out. And if the Spirit is being poured out, we also need to conclude, then so are the manifestations of the Spirit. And so we, we want to be careful and not say that Acts is transitional. Acts is not transitional. And, and people use this concept to say, Acts is just a special case, okay? The way the Spirit was received, you know, the fact that they did miracles and all of these things, so much of what we read in Acts, it's not going to happen in our day. It just happened during the apostolic age. Now, the apostolic age is not a biblical term. It's one that we impose on it. But can I just suggest to you that if that's the case, why does Justin Martyr, who wrote in 150 A.D., Irenaeus, who wrote in 185 A.D., Tertullian, who wrote in 200 A.D., even Origen, who wrote in 225 A.D., why do they all talk about these manifestations of the Spirit still in their day? Origen, however, um, he says that they were only these manifestations, these just... Tongues, prophecy, interpretation of these types, these miracles, raising from the dead even, that they were done only among the most godly. But they were still there. Okay? So we want to be careful. Acts is not transitional. Acts is not transitional. Number seven, we realize there's no formula for the spirit reception events. Because sometimes it precedes water baptism. Sometimes it happens after water baptism. Sometimes there's the laying on of hands. Sometimes there's not the laying on of hands. But generally, there is the laying on of hands. Let me suggest something to you. In Hebrews chapter 6, do you remember when the author is saying that there, we want to move on from the elementary teachings of Christ? And he lists six elementary teachings. There was repentance, faith, baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection, general resurrection of the dead, both just and unjust, and the judgment. Some would go to heaven, some would go to hell. When he talks about something you want to see here is that in all of those six, remember their basic foundational teachings, they, they, they are about salvation. 
repentance, faith, water baptism. Not that water baptism saves you, because we're going to get into that question in just a moment, but it is the context of many people's conversions. Much as in America we have altar calls, they had water baptisms. Do you want to you want to call upon the name of the Lord? Do you want to be saved? Let's get water baptized. Okay? Not that baptism saves you. Again, we're going to get into that in just a few minutes here. And then we talk about the resurrection. Now that's our future salvation and the judgment that we now, <coughs> by the blood of Christ, enter into eternity. So then the question is, what does the laying on of hands have to do with salvation? Because laying on of hands is seen when you're ordaining people into leadership. There was laying on of hands there. Laying on of hands for the sick so that they would be healed. But then there's also laying on of hands for the receiving of the Spirit. And I'm going to suggest to you that the author is referring to the laying on of hands for the reception of the Spirit. And that would give us six basic principles or teachings that would be focused on the issue of salvation and the, the reception of the Spirit. In which case, I think it's fair for us to ask this question. Why don't we see that today? Crusades, when people come to the altar, how many times do they lay hands on them to receive the Spirit? You rarely see this. Why? It was a basic teaching in the early church. It was a basic teaching. Now, again, we have to be careful. There were times in which hands were not imposed on someone to receive the Spirit, and we see that in Cornelius' household. Remember, Peter's preaching, and then suddenly the Spirit comes on them, and they start speaking in tongues and, and uh, praising God, and then they're later water baptized. All right? No laying on of hands. So we cannot try and create a formula. All I'm saying is the laying on of hands was generally with regard to the reception of the Spirit. Question, comment? Where was that passage in Hebrews? Hebrews 6. Okay. Yep, very beginning. Okay, number eight, Jesus taught us to pray for the Spirit, Luke 11. There are some who say, well, the Spirit is just given when you believe in Jesus. Then why does Jesus tell us Ask your Father for the gift of the Spirit. We do ask Him. And, and it would not surprise me if the early church lost all of the, lost this concept, and be, because honestly, we don't see it a lot in our day. We, we see, it is being this teaching, this understanding of the Spirit that we're going through last week, this week. There certainly has been for several decades a revival of this, under a better understanding of the work of the Spirit. Don't get me wrong. But my background, a very traditional background, you never laid hands on people to receive the Spirit. You never talked about talk, speaking in tongues. Oh my goodness, that's of the devil, of course. We don't do that today. Why? Because the Acts is transitional. That's for the apostolic age. But none of this is based on the, the Word of God. Okay? It's truly not. Number seven, uh, sorry, SRE, spirit reception events and conversion. According to Luke, they happen very closely together. Many times, or, or sometimes at the same time, but sometimes there is a delay. And we're going to be looking at one of those delays very shortly um, that I didn't touch on last week, and we will today. And then lastly, Jesus is the baptizer with the Spirit. Okay, those are the, that's what we went over just in review. Um, 
I, I want us now to turn to Acts 19, and I want to look at something that we did not have time to look at last week. I kind of just glossed over it, and I'd like to spend just a few minutes, maybe five minutes, talking about this. And this is the disciples that Paul encounters in Ephesus. Let me just give you a little bit of backdrop. In chapter 18, Paul, at the end of his second missionary, excuse me, yes, at the end of his second missionary journey, leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus and then continues back to Antioch. So until he arrives there in the beginning of his third missionary journey, Priscilla and Aquila are ministering and sharing the gospel, etc. And in this, in the meantime, while Paul, before Paul gets to Ephesus, we are introduced to a gentleman by the name of Apollos. Apollos is a devout Jew. He knows Jesus. He, the scripture, it, it, Luke tells us he knows the scriptures well and he taught Jesus accurately, except he only knew of John's baptism. In other words, he didn't know Christian baptism. Okay? That, that pointed to Jesus. All right? That represented repentance. And in repentance, let's also always understand when you repent, that means you're turning away, but you're also turning to God. And that's what John the Baptist taught repentance. But this is specifically turning to Jesus. And so water baptism becomes this outward sign. And we're going to look at that issue in just a moment here. But this is, this is all that Apollos knew concerning baptism. He knew the scriptures well. He knew uh, that he taught Jesus accurately. And he even taught Trust in me. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life, okay? Jesus clearly taught throughout his ministry calling people to repentance and belief in him. So Apollos knew this. Apollos certainly was a Christian. And so Aquila and Priscilla just pull him aside very graciously. And that Greek word to pull aside is, is more than likely pulling him into a private conversation, more than likely in their home. So the NIV translates it. They invited him into their home and they lay out for him Christian baptism more clearly. He is then commended by the brothers there and sent to Corinth where he ministers to the Corinthians. Several years, just a few years later, Paul writes the Corinthians and there's already some clicks starting to occur. One of which follows Paul, one of which follows Apollos, one of which the super spiritual ones, we follow Christ. <laughs> and uh, as if Christ is, he says, we all follow Christ. Okay. Don't, you know, you Get my name out of there. I didn't actually baptize any of you except maybe one family. But no, nah, I didn't baptize you guys. And and so I am not the one you follow. Jesus is the one. But some of them followed Apollos. So what I'm saying here then is Apollos was a powerful speaker. He taught Jesus accurately. Um, and he was in Ephesus for some time teaching and proclaiming the gospel. And now we encounter in chapter 19, some disciples that look just like Apollos, just as far as what they know about Jesus. And it says here, 
In verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior. So Apollos goes by sea in an opposite direction. He's heading west, and Paul is heading in that same direction behind him. So he arrives in Ephesus while Apollos is in Corinth, okay? So he's taken the inroad, the in, the road inland, um, and he arrives at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? A couple of things here, and I need to be brief. Number one, this word disciple, or in the plural disciples, is used 30 times in the book of Acts. Every single time it's used, it refers to disciples of Jesus, but only one time does it use that qualifier of the Lord, disciples of the Lord. Every other time, it's a disciple or some disciples or the disciples, and we are to always understand that these are disciples of Jesus. Here's the significance of this. That tells us then 29 times the word disciple or disciples without any qualifier of the Lord or disciples of Jesus it always means of Jesus. And we are to understand this. So these are not disciples of John the Baptist. These are clearly disciples of Jesus. So much so that Paul understands that they are believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now again, we need to realize this is not a theological question. He understood them to believe in Jesus But he is wanting now to know, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Now this tells us that Paul knew theologically that it was possible to believe in Jesus and not have the baptism or the reception or the filling of the Spirit. And again, when Luke talks about the reception of the Spirit, he is talking about the reception of the Spirit with power or the empowerment of the Spirit. He's not talking about the regenerating work of the Spirit when you're born again. He's not talking about when the Spirit washes your sins away. As significant of those things are, he is focusing, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. All right? He's talking about the power of the Spirit in this book. And so this, this word disciples is specifically for um, disciples of Jesus. And then Paul even concedes that he understands them to be believers. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Let's also realize that we, we also need to conclude that these are disciples who truly believe in Jesus there is because there is just too much of a connection between them and Apollos. We just learned about Apollos. He taught, he knew the scriptures, he taught Jesus accurately, but he didn't know Christian baptism. Guess what we find out about these disciples who were in Ephesus, the very same city that Apollos was teaching in. They apparently believed in Jesus, but they had not received the spirit and they only knew John's baptism. Okay? So, I think we need to conclude these believe, these disciples are true believers. And if they're true believers, how long have they been believers? I, I, it, you can only imagine the reason why Luke includes them and their connection so closely, end of chapter 18, beginning of chapter 19, with Apollos, that 
they are, they, they probably were saved under the ministry of Apollos or sooner, it's possible, but they had an inadequate understanding of baptism. And that's all the text tells us. It doesn't say that they weren't, un, they, that they were not genuine believers. They were disciples. That's Luke's observation, not Paul's. Luke's observation. Paul met some disciples. Luke is saying these were disciples. And remember, he only uses that term with regard to disciples or followers of Jesus. There's no inclination that these are false disciples. Now, if the, I would suggest if these are to be understood as unbelievers, we should understand Apollos to be an unbeliever too. Luke's intention is to show us the connection here, okay? And so my, the reason for me pointing this out is they were probably believers for weeks, if not months, perhaps even over a year. We, we don't know. However long, whenever they got saved, more than likely under Apollos' ministry, Apollos had moved on. He'd already arrived in Corinth when Paul encounters them. We're looking at some time here. And again, I want us to realize that there are, that the Luke's point is that the reception of the Spirit and conversion generally happen, if not at the same moment, close in proximity time-wise. But there are times in which it does not. But also that the book of Acts is not transitional. We need to realize that this happens in our own Christian experience today. All right? Any questions with regard to this overview? Yeah. So the reception of the Spirit and conversion, like being close together, is that why some people in Christianity say that, that like speaking in tongues is an evidence of your salvation? No, the only reason why they say that is by this passage that we're looking at right now. And they assume that these are not believers and because that they had not received the Spirit and therefore had not spoken in tongues. Okay, that is, that is a misunderstanding, though, of this passage. Yeah, that's a Pentecostal teaching, an aberrant teaching, misunderstanding of this, that if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not saved. Okay, that is not what Scripture teaches. Yeah. Is there anything um, in Scripture that would hinder um, being baptized in this, in the, or the filling of the Spirit? And is once, okay, I'm just a little bit confused about one thing. Um, once you've prayed and had the laying on of hands, does, is that like a one-time thing as a believer after you're a believer to um Laying on hands and receiving the Spirit. That's different mm-hmm. than um, the empowering at, at moments of time, or no? Okay. Um, I would venture to say that all that we can go on is what the book of Acts teaches us and any other passages related. And there are other passages, Galatians 3, for example. Um, most of the passages refer to the reception of the Spirit for conversion. Um, or regeneration for sanctification, the the cleansing and the um, making us holy and these aspects, these missions, if you will, of the Spirit. So your question is, is it possible that someone can pray for the Holy Spirit, have hands laid on them, but not receive the Spirit and maybe need to have hands laid on them again? And again, I, I would have to say that 
there is not that example in the book of Acts. Or ones who've had the laying on hands and have seen the work of the manifestation of the Spirit that you would need that. Is that it? Or, you know, is there examples of having to farther, like, again? Okay, so are you asking, is it possible that someone actually received the Spirit and a manifestation of the Spirit, but have to have that happen again? Well, can, I know in, um, I think it's Acts, um, is it, or maybe not, where um, Simon the sorcerer, right? Yeah. He actually, it says that he was, a, at one point, he was he believed, I don't know if he's baptized, I don't remember, but mm-hmm. then very shortly after, I can't remember who, calls him the son of like the devil and all. But he, and he's really, steeped in the gall of bitterness. Right. Yeah. And he actually uh, became a leader of, cults and wrong teaching, Um, and we know this from several uh, historical accounts outside of the Bible that talks about him. Uh, Irenaeus in his Against Heresies talks about him being the father of all cults, and especially the Gnosticism that they had to battle in the second century. He was a pretty wicked dude. He believed he was God. He He was delusional. The degree to which he believed, he more than likely believed the facts um, I, I seriously doubt that he truly was converted and then apostatized within a week. Um, and so, consequently, um, to address your question, there is not an example in Acts, but let's understand, Acts is not trying to give us every possible scenario. Actually, what it's trying, what Luke is doing is he's giving us various scenarios in which the reception of the Spirit is different. Okay? It, about all of them received the Spirit in some manner, it was different than the next. And so we want to be careful there is no formula. We do, see, we do see that they had to pray for 10 days and that God's sovereign choosing. Then he poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Um, and Jesus does ask us to pray for it. Um, just as some people pray a sinner's prayer and are not converted because genuine faith is not there, um, I guess it's possible for some to pray for the Spirit and there's really no faith for it, maybe because of wrong teachings. These people did not even receive the Spirit because they did not know that the teaching here is not that they didn't know that there was a Spirit. That would almost be silly because, of course, if they knew the Old Testament, the Spirit was promised to be given. Most Jews knew this. Certainly they would. They didn't know that the Holy Spirit had been poured out yet. And so they had no knowledge to pray for it. So I'm, I'm going to say simply that it's possible. Okay? It's possible. Juliana? Uh, I was just going to say, I think part of her question would be like an explanation of Acts 4 and how Acts 4 plays into event anointing. Okay, as a re-empowerment type of event. Okay. So it's not necessarily that they lost it. Right. But, like, a greater empowerment was given to them or something? I mean, I don't don't know how you would... Yeah, I'm not sure how to word it either, because it doesn't say, it just says that they were filled with the Spirit. I.e., again... Not because, well, anyway. Let me move on. We want to ask this question now because uh, there have been much, many questioning and wondering, does water baptism save you? 
Does it regenerate you? Even St. Augustine talked about the labors of regeneration, referring to the baptismal waters. Now, I'm not going to suggest that Augustine missed it, but sometimes there is just confusion. And I'm not going to say just because someone believes that you have to be water baptized to be saved, sometimes when you get into their understanding of that, they truly do believe. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. It's just that you have to do so and proclaim Christ in that baptism, and that's going to be necessary. And there... But their, their faith, even though it's, there's a misunderstanding, the place of baptism, there is a genuine faith. And I, so I want to tread lightly here, um, and not just call everyone a heretic who says, you've got to, you got to be water baptized if you're going to be saved. Um, but that is clearly not what the book of Acts teaches. However, there are two passages, passages we need to look at. So, I can only spend a few minutes on this, so forgive me as I go over it quickly, but in Acts 2.38. At the end of Peter's Pentecostal sermon, they're asking, okay, Peter, dude, what do we do? And he says, in verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the way this is worded, it sounds as if you have to repent and then you have to be water baptized so that your sins can be forgiven. And we tend to understand this word for, for the forgiveness of sins. Do you all see that in your text? Look there in your text in verse 38, for the forgiveness of sins. We generally see a cause and effect there so that we could even supply the word so that in the place of for. And be ba- all of you be baptized in the name of Jesus so that your sins can be forgiven. I'm going to suggest to you that is not what this, what Peter is saying here. Actually, to the contrary. It's just that how we translate this Greek word that in our versions is translated for can really mess us up. It is the Greek word ace. You know what? I'm going to erase this, by the way. Okay. At least the top five here. Uh-oh, what's going on? Oh, well. Yeah, this is not going to... It's not wanting to work. i got to fix this. So... I'm going to put it right here. Okay. We don't. It's going to take too long. It, it, it is the Greek word ace. That, that might put it up a little higher. We'll see how this does. The Greek word ace. Okay. And it's generally translated unto or into and sometimes for. <coughs> <coughs> It is also translated in a different way that I'm going to suggest it must be translated this different way in this case. Must be. And let me just give you two verses in which the context is very similar and you're going to see the big difference. 
Because right now, it seems like this word ace means you're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Being baptized causes the forgiveness of sins. And actually, it's the other way around. And it's this word for that is throwing us. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew 3, verse 11. You do not have to have a Greek Bible to get this. I'm just going to kind of coach you a bit and you'll see it. You might want to write this actually in your Bibles. But this context is John the Baptist's addressing the people. And he says here in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. And that word for is our Greek word ace. And I'm going to suggest to you, if we translate it as a cause and effect, then we would say John's baptizing them then causes them to repent. Okay? And you're laughing because that's clearly not the case. The reason why they want to get baptized is because they're already repenting, right? I want to change my life, and so what am I going to do? Well, John says, be baptized As a result of, that's, I'm going to suggest to you, that is the translation then for this word ace in this context. Excuse me. As a result of. I baptize you with water as a result of repentance. So repentance, then, doesn't necessarily cause the water baptism, but that's why you're being baptized. It's the result of your repentance. Now, do you see that? We cannot say that John the Baptist is saying, I'm going to baptize you so that you'll repent. Because he rebuked the Pharisees for not repenting, but he wasn't going to baptize them. No, he's saying you need to repent and then get water baptized. And that's why he rebuked the Pharisees earlier. He, he says, show me your repentance by the fruit of your repentance. And I know that in essence, I'm paraphrasing, I know you haven't repented because I don't see the fruit of it. And he's really, he's, he's pulling no punches with them. But so surely he is not suggesting, I'm gonna ba- I baptize with water so that you will repent. But rather, I am baptizing with water as a result of repentance. Let's turn to one more passage, and that would be in Matthew 12. <coughs> Matthew 12, 41. <clears throat> and in Matthew 12, 41, he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation, condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. That word at is this Greek word, ace. So in essence, if we're going to say, use this cause and effect, we would say, for they repented, um, therefore causing Jonah to preach. And we know that that's not right. No, it's 
they repented as a result of the preaching of Jonah. Ace, the re- as a result of the preaching of Jonah. So as you go back now to Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ as a result of the forgiveness of your sins. It's the same construction as these two passages that we looked at. As a matter of fact, with regard to John the Baptist, it's even the same topic. What are baptism? So I'm going to suggest to you baptism does not cause the forgiveness of sins, water baptism is done as a result of the forgiveness of sins. One other passage would be in Matthew, excuse me, Acts chapter 22. <clears throat> Paul's conversion is given to us three times in the book of Acts. In case you didn't get it the first time, you get two more chances at it. Acts 9. Acts 22 and Acts 26. Now, Acts 9 is where he actually gets converted. All right, chronologically in, in the, that, the chronologically in the early church. Okay, in the history there. So that's the setting, Acts 9. But then in Acts 22, that's where he is actually addressing the people who have arrested him. The Jews who almost ripped him apart was that they were forced to hand him over to the um, the Roman official. And he asks if he can address the people, and he gives his testimony here. Then 26 is where he's standing before King Agrippa and uh, Governor Festus, Felix, in defending why he, is, why he got in trouble with the Jews to begin with, because he has been preaching Jesus. So he shares his testimony. So here's his second uh, testimony. And in this, every single one of them is just slightly different. It, it's not contradictory of course just gives you a different angle and perspective on his conversion and he says when ananias came to him to lay hands on him and he received his sight and he was filled with the spirit it says what's not included in chapter 9 ananias says and now what are you waiting for verse 16 what are you waiting for get up be baptized and wash your sins away calling on his name now If you're not careful with the NIV, you would think there's three verbs here. Number one, get up. Then the next thing you do is get water baptized, and then you will wash your sins away. And if we're not careful, we will see, we'll make this connection. You see that word and? Be baptized and wash your sins away. We can kind of see that word and as a cause and effect. Be baptized so that your sins will be washed away. And that's not what he's getting at. There's actually only two verbs here in the Greek. Number one, be baptized. And number two, wash your sins away. There's two participles. Do you know what a participle is? It is, uh, in this case, it modifies a verb, like an adverb would. But it is a verb that actually modifies another verb. So it would be translated getting up be baptized. Wash your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord, or while calling on the name of the Lord. There's two separate events going on here, not one. Two separate events. There's being water baptized, in which you've got to get up to do this, and then there is washing your sins away by calling on the name of the Lord. 
So if we're going to see a cause and effect relationship in what Ananias is saying to him, it is not be baptized so that your sins can be washed away, but rather call upon the name of the Lord so that your sins can be washed away. Now, do you see that? It's calling. Calling is that participle. It modifies the verb wash. So how do you get your sins washed away? By calling on the name of the Lord, on Jesus' name. Okay? So Ananias is not trying to suggest that by being baptized, your sins are going to be washed away. Though may I say this, that many times, because water baptism was in essence their altar call, where would you call on the name of the Lord so your sins would get washed away? You would do it, at least publicly, verbally, you would do it while you're being water baptized. Remember Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, believing in your heart and then confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. There's a believing in your heart and then there is a confession that we are to make. That confession, the, the believing in their heart would happen in response to the gospel, they would come forward and be water baptized and then confess the good confession. Okay? The answer, or as Peter says, the answer of a good conscience toward God. But that does not mean that water baptism saves you. Okay? It can become the context, many times was the context, in which people did call on the name of the Lord publicly. Jesus is Lord, rescue me, God. I am following you, whatever profession of faith that they're declaring, okay? But we cannot say water baptism washes your sins away. Any questions on this topic? Okay, let's now take the next half hour. I was hoping for a little bit more time, but that's fine. We'll do the next half hour, and I want us to look at um, this last half of the book of Acts and... I don't know if you want to just turn to Acts chapter 9 and we're just kind of going to kind of go through it, looking at the three missionary journeys. But in Acts 9, Paul, we understand he is from Tarsus, which if you have a map in front of you, maybe in the back of your Bible or somewhere, then Tarsus is north, a little bit west of Jerusalem. It's in... Um, it's northwest also of Antioch. It's in Cilicia. Um, not Cecilia. Not Sicily. <laughs> but Cilicia. Okay? And so he is from Tarsus. He is said to be the son of a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. He was tutored under Gamaliel to be a rabbi of the Pharisees. And he was a legalist. He followed the letter of the law as best he could. And the result of all of that was this incredible bondage to the law. If anyone felt the bondage of the law to make yourself righteous before God, it was Paul. And that's why he, he is so passionate about this concept of justification. By faith alone, you cannot be justified by the, the, the works of the law. It's not faith and works or faith in the law. It is only faith, okay? The, the outward working of our, our salvation is just that. 
It is works that follow our faith. It, those works do not save us. They might declare publicly that we're saved. People might be able to look at Diego and say, yeah, I know Diego's saved because I see the, the, the Christ-like works in his life. I've seen how God's transformed him. And uh, Diego has truly been transformed by the power of God's Spirit. You know, I knew him four years ago. And God has changed him. It's awesome. And he's changed each of you. And so Paul was this legalistic guy. And when he started hearing this teaching about Jesus, it infuriated him. The, 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 the teaching of the scriptures and this Jesus, no. I mean, Jesus, he was a Sabbath breaker. This Jesus, he even healed on the Sabbath. This Jesus, he taught many things, so he thought, contrary to the Old Testament. He taught people to believe in him. He taught people to be willing to die for him. Take up your cross and follow me. What? This is a heretic. This is a cult leader. This is the way he's thinking. He's going to lead everybody astray. These miracles, they had to have been done by the devil and not by God. And so he was passionately against Jesus. And we need to realize that this is significant because what Luke is wanting to do is he is wanting to show Paul not kind of sliding into Christianity and adopting it like others did, which is totally fine, but he was persecuting the church even to the point where they died. So it, when, when he's on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and said, Paul, or Saul, Saul, because remember his name was changed from Saul to Paul, or at least that's how he was addressed. Okay. It didn't necessarily change. That was his name. It's just that his Greek name, Paul, was the one that became used later. His Hebrew name, Saul, not so much so. And so Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And then when Ananias is, is speaking to him, laying hands on him from he, his healing, he says, you know what? The Lord appeared to me. And he said, you need to tell this guy how much he must suffer for me. There's such an emphasis on Paul being the persecutor to Paul being the persecuted for Christ. What an amazing transition in this guy's life. Luke also emphasizes this by doing this. In Acts, end of Acts 8, who gets saved? Look in your Bibles. Who gets saved? The Ethiopian eunuch. Here's this guy. He is a God-fearing Gentile, but he had just been to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts. And now on his way back, he encounters Philip by a miracle and... Reading, of all places, Isaiah 53 about Jesus, and he's, Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? This is, how can I unless someone teaches me? And he preaches the gospel to him and he gets saved. But he was a God-fearer. He was one, uh, he was a seeker. He wanted God and everything that God had for him. And he, you might say he was an easy convert. I don't, I don't necessarily like that term, but he was, he was seeking God and he found him. Paul? Oh, no way. He thought he was seeking God, but he was really, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay. He was opposed to God, didn't even know it. Now we move on to the next chapter, chapter 10. Who gets saved in chapter 10? 
Cornelius. Cornelius was another God-fearing Gentile, a Roman official, but a God-fearing Gentile. He is seeking God. He is well known for his his acts of righteousness, giving to the poor, helping them. And he, the, the Jews respected him. And he, he truly believed in and loved God. And an angel appears to him and says, hey, go to this place. There's a guy who's going to, you're going to have come by the name of Peter. and He's going to preach the gospel to you and, and Cornelius and all of his household, his relatives and friends that he invited there into his house, get saved. Holy Spirit descends powerfully, etc. Here's another man, God-fearing Gentile, truly wanting God, vastly different in his background than Saul. And so Paul's conversion is sandwiched by two testimonies of men who were truly seeking and humbled and eager to discover the truth in God. And God sends someone, Philip and Peter, to them to preach the gospel. But not so with Saul. Jesus appears to him. So we see this contrast. As a matter of fact, do you know where he stay, where Saul is staying? Judas on Straight Street. Doesn't always tell us the name of the places or people that they're staying with, but in the next chapter, where is Peter staying? Simon, which by the way is Peter's other name, Simon the Tanner. What was Simon, what was Peter going through? He was going through this idea of clean and unclean. Three times a vision descends. Rise, kill, and eat. Not me. I've never eaten an unclean thing in all my life. God, why are you having me do this? Now, this is the vision that he's having. But where's he staying? Simon the Tanner. You know what a Tanner does? He deals with dead things every day. That means he is never clean to, to attend a feast. Never. Because that, that's what he does. He's always unclean, and he technically can never go to the temple because of this. And yet, that's the very place where God is ministering, the very subject that God is ministering to Peter about, unclean animals. Dead animals were considered unclean. Where's, Ju- where's Saul of, of Tarsus staying? Judas on Straight Street. A crooked street is symbolic of a wicked life. He has now... Uh, come to Christ and we, this concept of Judas, the first Judas that would pop into someone's mind that we read about in chapter one is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And here is a betrayer of Jesus, but now he's found on straight street. Excuse me, not crooked street, but straight street. And that concept of crooked and straight is very well known in the Old Testament. I kind of am leaning, this is speculation, I understand this, but I'm kind of leaning towards just Luke wanting us to see this immense, incredible transition in Paul's life. So much so that in chapter 9, as soon as he receives his sight, he eats something, he's water baptized, and he immediately, he spends several days with the disciples in Damascus, Verse 20 of chapter 9, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and they were astonished at this guy's conversion, it says. And he reasons with them. And he, he 
22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So it's not just that he stood up and preached Christ, but he proved you need to realize who this Jesus is. And he would go into the Old Testament and prove to them Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, many other places that this Jesus who lived did miracles. He did so because he was anointed by the Spirit, Isaiah 61, to proclaim the good news and release to those who are in dungeons of darkness. That is the gospel. Year of our Lord's favor. Phrase also found in Isaiah 61. So this is what he is doing, and he's baffling the Jews. He knows the Old Testament. Uh, He knew it by being taught under Gamaliel, a well-known rabbi, who, by the way, is talked about in the book of Acts. And he... Just this radical conversion. He is now on fire, so on fire that he gets kicked out of Jerusalem. They're, they want to kill this guy. He goes, eventually, three years later, he goes to Jerusalem and he is stirring up a ruckus and he has to flee for his life. So he goes back to Tarsus. He's in Tarsus for seven to eight years. And eventually, because of the persecution that he helped instigate in Acts 8, the gospel starts spreading north to um, to Cyprus and eventually to Antioch and it goes to Gentiles and Gentiles in Antioch are getting saved. Barnabas goes up there in a phenomenal encourager in the word, um, very positive type of guy. He can call the good out in anyone. He did that with John Mark, his cousin, and he's just, just this encourager. Paul, I mean, he's a dude that can spit fire. He's a dude that is just, he's intense. And now he is in Tarsus and Barnabas knows of him and he sends someone to get him. And he then comes to Antioch and begins helping Barnabas build the church. Eventually in chapter 13, the leaders, um, and it actually lists five of them. They are together, they're worshiping. And in verse two of chapter 13, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I think it's important to realize it's worded this way because the Holy Spirit had already planted these desires in their heart. Because the question is, well, what work has the Spirit called them to? It's past tense. So they had already received this calling, maybe a stirring and a burden, fire in their heart to to reach out to the Gentiles far beyond Antioch, and now the Holy Spirit converts, uh, confirms this. Set them apart for the work to which I have called them. And so they begin by going to Cyprus, and I, I'm going to go through this first missionary journey somewhat quickly, but... Um, but before I do, let me lay out for you a strategy Oh, I wanted to have this on the board, and I don't. Um, so I'm just going to list these for you. There, I have listed seven elements of Paul's and Barnabas's missionary strategy. Okay, they didn't just wake up one day and say, "Hey, pff, let's go to Galatia. Let's, let's let's start some churches. Let's just let's just go here and go there and preach the gospel." They prayed about this. They actually came with a strategy. So the first thing that they did was that they used Antioch, Syria 
as their home base. Number one, first thing, home, that's their home base. Whenever they left, whenever they came back, that's where they were. They reported to those people. They were involved in the leadership there. They were accountable to that leadership as well as the leadership in Jerusalem, but even more so to Antioch. And they, they would encourage the brothers by what God shared with them. May I also say what's interesting here is God sent the best leaders to do the missions work. Not those who couldn't cut the grade. Oh, you can't make it in pastoring in America? I'll send you overseas. God didn't do that. God sends his best. Paul and Barnabas, the guy who started the church, or yeah, not started it, but uh, really when it started, he was, the, he was their senior pastor. He gets sent out with Paul on this missionary journey. God sends his best. So their home base is is Antioch of Syria. There's another Antioch that we're going to get to. That's why I'm making a distinction. Um, number two, um, they regularly traveled with others. You will only hear the names of some of them, but Titus, you never hear about Titus in Acts, but Titus went with them many times on their journeys. We only know about this because like in the book of Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, Titus is mentioned in his, uh, apparently a part of his second missionary journey. Um, so there were others that were involved in their missionary journeys that Luke doesn't necessarily mention, but Barnabas and Saul, later Paul, were the two main leaders. Now, it's possible they were the only two on this first missionary journey, um, along with John Mark, but we do know that, um, that there were others that traveled with them. Number three, they generally went to major cities. <coughs> it's not that they didn't go to towns. It's just that those towns are never mentioned. Okay. Major cities or cities that were once large, but still there was a, a crossroads of trade through those cities. Um, strategic places. If you plant a church there, it has the potential to impact not just that city, but other cities, okay? So that's what I mean by major cities. Number three, excuse me, number four, they ministered first in synagogues and then to Gentiles. Turn to chapter 13, verse 44. And in chapter 13, verse... Chapter 13, verse 44, it's... um, Wait a second. Um, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. And Gentiles, because they're God-fearing Gentiles who had adopted Jewish customs and beliefs. They believed in God in the Old Testament, okay? Um, but they would go into the synagogues. And then, as we see here in chapter 13... Uh, as verse 42 is, excuse me, verse 44, on the next Sabbath, I'm backing up now to a, a prior mission in um, in Pisidian Antioch. And it says on the next Sabbath, so he's preached one Sabbath, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, you meaning the Jews. 
Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So after he would start in the synagogues, because they would actually welcome him many times, they understood that he was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, brought up under Gamaliel, and, and, and it's possible his reputation preceded him, but he would be identified as a rabbi. I don't know if he wore, when he would go into the synagogue, a special um, uh, shawl that would indicate this. It's possible, but he would have many times be recognized as a rabbi and come up and be allowed to preach in their synagogue. What a welcome platform to be able to proclaim Christ. So that's where he would start. He would talk about Jesus, all that he did, and all that he fulfilled, and how scripture pointed to him from the Old Testament, and that Jesus truly was the Messiah who came to die for our sins. Okay, and so they would many times start in the Jewish synagogue. When they eventually got fed up with him, and there would be a division. This almost always happened. They would kick him out. Many would believe and follow him, and he would go somewhere else in the city and now minister to the Gentiles and proclaim the gospel to them. As a result, we find in chapter 14, turn with me to verse 30, uh, 23, they now are going, they're going through Galatia, if you look at a map, and now they're going back and visiting those. And while they're doing that, they're strengthening the disciples and building them up in the faith. And he says in verse 23, it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. Uh, the reason why they were able to set elders in so quickly is because these were Jewish converts. These were Jews who knew the word, just like Paul knew the word for years and years and years. They just now needed to see Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these passages. And so Paul taught that. And so men, as they came to Christ, God was already building character in their lives. And now they're qualified to be an elder. They knew the word. Character was being built in their lives already. And now with the knowledge of Christ and being transformed, spirit birthed, they are now within maybe even a few months ready to be elders. Do we have a question over here? What's that number five on the list of appointing elders? Yeah, actually that was number seven. So I'll, I'll number five. Yeah, I jumped ahead there. We're talking about elders, sorry. Um, number five, so ministered first in synagogues, then to Gentiles is number four. Number five is miracles accompanied their preaching. Um, so they regularly, as they preached, there was miracles. God just did miracles and confirmed the word preached. That's what the miracles did. The miracles didn't so much confirm them. The miracles confirmed the word, that what they were saying is true. If that's the case then miracles need to be done on the mission field, not to confirm some preacher, but to confirm the truth of what they're saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why miracles were done, to confirm the word, not the speaker. Okay. All right. Um, number six, I've mentioned this, but they reasoned with the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. That is, they discussed, or the Greek word is dialogeo, uh, or dialogamai, which means to dialogue, or really better reason, debate, um, just mano a mano, so to speak, or mind to mind, and really 
trying to convince them, this is what the Word says. This is the Old Testament. I know you believe it. And it, it, this, this, if the Spirit could just give you some illumination here, you'll see Jesus has to be the Messiah. All right. Again, Isaiah 53, if you're not aware of that, 12 verses, 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah prophesied about this coming Messiah. Phenomenal 12 verses that has won many a Jew to Christ, seeing him as the Messiah. Number six is they they reasoned with the Jews. And then number seven, they established churches and set in leaders. So as we are going through this first missionary journey, they go through Cyprus, they come to... um, let me remember, is it per, per, uh, Perga? And if you were to look at a map and find Perga, okay, maybe a map in the back of your Bible. Um, my Bible actually has in the book of Acts, it has three, uh, all of Paul's three missionary journeys. So if you have that, just go to his first missionary journey. I'm not going to walk us through uh, these missionary journeys in detail. I'm just going to highlight some things as we go through them, okay? And... Apparently, when they leave Cyprus and they land in Perga, when they land, Luke tells us that John Mark leaves them. And it's a very nice word to use, John Mark leaves them. But then the reality comes in chapter 15 when they want to go on a second missionary journey. Paul brings it up. Uh, John Mark deserted us. Whoa, that's a stronger word. Something happened. And we don't know what it is. Some have suggested homesickness. I'm going to tell you right now it was not homesickness. I seriously doubt it was homesickness. Come on. The guy's a, he's a man. He's not going to get homesick. I miss mama. Really? No. There was a lot more that must have gone on. Now, I'm speculating when I, what, what I'm about to say. But if you were to have read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you, you read a number of things that the weaknesses of Paul that hallmark his apostleship, one of which is three shipwrecks. A lot of other persecutions, etc. but he says, I've been shipwrecked three times. He wrote that in 55 AD. The only shipwreck that we're aware of that Paul had happened in 59 AD or 60 AD, okay? The one that's recorded in, in Acts. So these three shipwrecks, Luke does not tell us about. And one of them, he was a night and a day in the open sea. He tells us this in Second Corinthians 11. I don't know about you. I'm not sure how keen I would be out there where sharks are and you're floating on wood or some aspect of the boat. Uh, and you're for a, a night and a day before you're rescued. I hate deep water. I, out in the middle of the ocean, I would freak out. That, I can only imagine that that is what happened with John Mark. I'm guessing, I realize, but I think one of these those shipwrecks happened here. And it freaked him out. And I thought God was in this missionary journey, and we almost lost our lives. And, and I can almost hear Paul saying, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. You, you didn't hear the prophetic word that was given over my life? That I'm going to have to go through a lot of... Per- Buddy, you follow me, you're going through persecutions. Sorry. And it freaks John Mark out. Whatever it was, when he landed in Perga, he wanted to hightail it back to Jerusalem. He didn't, or, or Antioch. He did not want to be there. Barnabas 
still saw the diamond in the rough. Later, Paul did. And it was probably because John Mark matured. But like in Colossians chapter 4, Paul commends John Mark. I want this guy with me. Send him to me. Let him encourage me. Have him bring some stuff to me. Let him refresh my spirit. John Mark, the deserter. Some 30 or 20 years later, rather, um, I want him to be the one who comes and visits me in prison. He valued his relationship with John Mark. Let me just tell you this. God never gives up on you. John Mark blew it. Whatever it was, he blew it. Totally lacked faith. Scared out of his wits, whatever emotion overcame him, hightailed it back to Antioch. But God changed him. God didn't give up on him. And God will never give up on you either. He's not going to do it. He will pursue you. There's a call on your life. You are a diamond in the rough today, perhaps, but not next year or five years down the road. God is working in your life. And what you think may have disqualified you today, mm -mm. God is actually going to turn that around. And it's going to qualify you later. The persecutions that Paul breathed out against the church ended up qualifying him. This, this just intensity for truth. God changed that intensity for intensity for the real truth found in Christ. And he was willing to go through anything to pursue Jesus. And so as I say, the, it's very possible that Paul get sick somewhere on this journey, perhaps due to this shipwreck, we don't know. But when he writes the Galatians, he says, the reason why I visited you guys was because I got sick. And it may well have had to do with his eyesight. When we go through the book of Galatians, we'll talk about that. But there is a mountain ridge, if you could follow Perga up to Pisidian Antioch, there's a mountain ridge there. And they they followed this river that was, the mountain ridge was on the left. And they may well have had the intention of crossing that mountain ridge and going into Asia. Maybe even Ephesus. Ephesus, such a huge crossroads of trade. And you, you plant a church in Ephesus, that gospel's gonna really grow. But that is what happened in Acts 19. Just didn't happen in Acts 13. But because of this illness, they decided to go to Pisidian Antioch and preach the gospel to the Galatians instead. Um, now, in the second missionary journey, uh, we see in chapter 16, that, hmm, I am going to skip the Jerusalem Council because of time. Um, it, it's really, I'll just say this. The issue, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? And the answer is shot down, absolutely not. Remember Paul, the legalist, passionate for the law. Of anyone, this man would know the death that the law, when you're striving to fulfill the law to get right with God, the death that that brings, he experienced that with intensity. And he is then passionate. It is by faith alone. By faith alone. <clears throat> okay. Um, some other things could definitely be said there that I wanted to. I'm not going to. Um, we move on to the second missionary journey in chapter 16. And we see Timothy, who was probably converted in Paul's first missionary journey. As you look at the second missionary journey, they go through those same towns of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Again, that's Pisidian Antioch, not Syrian Antioch, okay? 
And while they're in Lystra, they pick up Timothy. Um, Timothy was in Lystra. Timothy very possibly witnessed the stoning of Paul in his first missionary journey. So Timothy, he gets it. If I'm going to follow Paul, I'm going to be persecuted too. I saw it with my own eyes. And so he's, he's ready. I'm going to go with Paul. He's a very young man, maybe late teens, early 20s, but he's a young man and he steps into the saddle of ministry and he eventually is recognized and, um, and, and starts serving apostolically uh, with Paul and Silas. Those are the three men whose names are mentioned and they begin strengthening the church. There's a strong emphasis on their ministry in Philippi in Thessalonica, in Berea, Athens, and Corinth. So they're beyond Galatia now. They don't minister in Asia. Now, we're not talking about the Far East Asia. We're talking about Asia in Asia Minor. That is present-day Turkey. The west side of, of present-day Turkey. That's called Asia. Was called Asia. The Spirit leads them around that. They skip it, and they go over to Macedonia, which would be present-day Greece. Um, or what's Yugoslavia, just north of it. And <clears throat> they come to Philippi, Thessalonica, and they're ministering there. And um, they spend about a year and a half in Corinth. And there, more than likely, is when he writes First and Second Thessalonians, probably the first two letters that he writes. Um, I take the position that Galatians is written after that and not before it. When we get to Galatians, we'll discuss that just a little bit. Um, but something I want you to notice, he ministers in Corinth where there's an emphasis with his ministry in the synagogue differently than when he ministers in Athens. Doesn't talk about the synagogues that he ministers to when he's in Athens that I recall. Let me just double check that. Um, well, it, it does say that he uh, he did go when he was in Athens. He did go to the synagogues, but his ministry is is more focused on the the Greeks, the Gentiles, and their philosophy. So he goes to the Areopagus and he's ministering there. And the way he ministers there to Greeks is very different than the way he ministered to the Jews. He doesn't pull out his Old Testament and start saying, "Let me just prove to you that Jesus is the Christ." He he approaches it very differently. He approaches it and kind of steps into that Greek mindset. How would they think? And therefore, how can I appeal? And he actually does something very fascinating that I don't have time for uh, about this altar to an unknown God, which um, Epimenides had had built in 600 BC, which, by the way, he quotes Epimenides here in verse 28. And it's still there. 650 years later to an altar of an unknown God. Um, and, and God had done something in that uh, city and there was a reason why that altar was built because God, the one true God that they did not know and acknowledge that they didn't know, did. God did something. The one true God did something. And this is the God that Paul is appealing to now. Let me tell you about this God. You have so many, I mean, you've got an, Altar and idols everywhere in this city. Idolatry, uh, whacked out philosophies everywhere. 
And so Paul approaches it from that angle to appeal to a very worldly mindset. Very different than when he ministers to the Jews. Okay? And we are going to find ourselves ministering in different contexts in different ways ourselves. Okay? I, I understand you may know the, the four spiritual laws or uh, evangelism explosion and the five steps and, and so on. But when you're ministering to a Jew, you're probably going to approach it very differently than when you're ministering to an atheist or to someone who says that they're a Christian, but they're living totally in sin. Um, and so how you share the gospel is going to be different according to the context. And that's what we see here in Paul. I'm going to move on to the third missionary journey and try and wrap this up as quickly as I can. Um, <clears throat> the focus by far is his mission in Ephesus. He's there for, Paul says he's there for two and a, or Luke tells us he's there for two and a quarter years. When he gets kicked out because of a riot at the end of um, Acts 19, he comes back and he does. He, he goes to Miletus, which is on the coast, and calls the elders of that church to him and addresses them. And he says that he'd been there for three years. Here's something that we do know. Either he's rounding two and a quarter years to three years. Or my take on it is that he was literally in the city for two and a quarter years. But he was there in that region for three. Because what we find is that there, he, when he was in Ephesus, he made a trip to Corinth that Luke does not record. But when he comes to visit them, the Corinthians, in his third missionary journey, he says it's, his, it's going to be his third visit. But according to Luke, it should have only been his second. So more than likely, while he's in Ephesus, because that's where he writes First and Second Corinthians from, um, he, is, he, he is writing, he goes there during his three-year stay in Ephesus. He may very well, uh, because of Epaphras coming to Christ, Epaphras goes to Colossae, which is due east, and shares the gospel, and the Colossians come to Christ. Paul may have followed that up a little bit later, but what I'm saying is his ministry in Ephesus was thorough. He, he, we, we, realize, we must realize that Luke doesn't tell us everything that happened, but we do know this. He says the word of God spread and everyone in Asia heard the gospel. When he tried to minister, perhaps in his first missionary journey, got sick and decided instead to go to Pisidian Antioch, not to Asia. That's possible. We do know that he wanted to go to Asia in his second missionary journey, but God, by the Spirit, said nope. And he went around, and then when he found, when he went all the way around Ephesus, excuse me, Asia, he ends up in Troas and gets a, uh, a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come and minister to us. So he immediately goes over there. Now, Ephesus and Asia is ripe. And I'm just going to let you know that, that God is going to have you in different seasons. And he's going to have you ministering to some people. You really want to minister to them, maybe a family member while you're visiting them. Uh, but it just seems like there's no opportunity. And it may very well be that God is saying they're not ready right now. That coworker that you're wanting to evangelize, that boss that you're wanting to share the gospel with, and you're looking and praying for opportunities, and you just feel like, wow, the devil just seems to be stealing every one of those opportunities away. 
And it may just well be God is saying, you know what? They're just not ready right now. Give me a, give me a bed. I'm preparing them. So don't give up. Don't give up praying for people. Don't give up praying for opportunities. Pray that their, God would make their heart ready and ripe to hear the gospel and would anoint you to share it with them. But realize that God has a sovereign timing of all of this. What the Greek word is kairos, opportune times. Okay, I'm going to just touch on after he comes back from his third missionary journey in chapter 20, we see in the very beginning, he has this huge entourage with him, lists many of the names because he's carrying a little, he's carrying a huge, huge wad of cash, if you will. Okay, they probably had a box, but he was carrying an offering for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who had gone through a drought and were in desperate need. And he's telling you, you know what, the reason why you even heard the gospel is because the Jews heard it first and sent me out. So let's honor the Jews. Let's bless them in Jerusalem with this gift. And so he comes to Jerusalem and he is arrested. They give them, he gives the money, of course, but he's arrested and he spends two years in Caesarea in prison. I think I made a mistake. Two weeks ago, I think I called it Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is actually due north of Sea of Galilee, and Caesarea is on the, the west coast. So there's, there's two Caesareas. So the Caesarea on the coast, that's where um, a fortress was. That's where the seat of government was. And this is where he's in prison for two years. And then he appeals to Caesar. Now, the re- I want to end with this. The only shipwreck that Luke mentions is found in chapter 27. By the way, he eventually gets to Rome. He's safe under house arrest for two years. He pens numerous letters, probably Philippians is one of them, in which he says, because I am here, everyone in the whole palace guard has heard the gospel and all the brothers have been encouraged because of my boldness to preach the gospel too. So God had ultimate purposes. But we discover this actually earlier. You're kind of wondering, wow, God, why would you allow Paul to be in prison? He's in prison. He can't do anything. Not so. Now he goes to Rome, and on his way to Rome, he's shipwrecked? Really? This is tragic. God, why why do you have him go through such a rough life? They despaired of life itself. I can't imagine what it would be like to, they eventually cut the sails and they were driven by this, this northeastern, it's a hurricane, okay? They're in the middle of a hurricane and the hurricane is driving them. Where are they going to drive? Where, where are they going to be driven to? And a prophetic word, an angel comes, comforts them and gives them a prophetic word from God. Hey, keep every board, everybody aboard and they'll all be safe. Some wanted to abandon ship, and Paul said, if you do, this promise isn't good for you. God told me, if you stay on board, you'll be safe. And what happens? They eventually are shipwrecked off the island of Malta, and they they make it to the island of Malta, and everyone is kept safe. Hundreds. They're all kept safe. And you see the providential, sovereign, powerful, almighty hand of God overseeing Paul's missionary journeys. No matter how many times he's persecuted, he never loses his life until his ministry is complete in 68 AD, maybe late 67, and he does die at the hands of Emperor Nero. But he is done. He had finished the race, Second Peter chapter, Second Timothy chapter 4. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
I'm, I, if God calls me home, I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, and this that's is where the uh, the movie Christ, excuse me, uh, Paul, uh, Apostle of Christ. That's where the setting is there. And he's in that dungeon. But you see through this hurricane and this shipwreck that even the midst of incredible tragedy, such it says they despaired even of life. I've never been there. And yet, God sovereignly oversaw what happened because he wanted to bring Paul to Rome. He'd already written the book of Romans a couple years before. And so now he gets to meet these people he had written a letter to that he had never been to Rome before. And he gets to preach the gospel, build up the church, and God is totally in control. And I'm just going to close on this, guys. No matter what you go through in life, we serve a God who is so for you. In the darkest moment, when you're despairing of life itself, God is right there. Jesus is interceding for you. The Father is superintending his, uh, providentially his, his plan for your life, and he is guiding it, and not one thing will happen outside of his perfect will for you. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. That shipwreck was hard. The, the times that Paul was beaten, many times he was beaten. Luke records only a, a, a few of the persecutions of Paul, and Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, there were many more. God may breathe, God may have us go through these hard times, but if we were to hold on and trust in Him as He's building this faith that is so much more precious than gold, as He builds this in you through horrendous bosses or workmates or neighbors or relatives or anyone or any tragedy or difficulty, God has this awesome plan. He hasn't lost sight of you and He's heard your prayers. And he is coming swiftly to rescue you and move you on because he's got an amazing, amazing plan for your life if you will but continue to pursue him, just like Paul did. Let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. Even when we may be in despair, wondering where are you, God, right now? I don't understand it. We can look to Paul. God, you used this man probably more than any other rather than Jesus. What an amazing man of God. And yet he endured so much more persecution than I will perhaps ever say. Forgive me, Lord, for my complaints. Even today, God, when I was complaining to you, God, let, let this, let this encourage us. You are so for us. Not just for Paul, because he was some amazing man. Because in the beginning, he certainly wasn't. It's all because of your grace, God. You called us out of the world by your grace. You're calling us to yourself by your grace. We will triumph over all things by your grace. So God, thank you. Right now, whatever difficulty we are in, you are with us, even to the end of the age. We love you, Lord. You're so good, so good. Please encourage us with this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I did it again.
we're past our time, but I hope that uh, that word was an encouragement to you.